Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover, and I'm also the host of a show on True TV called Adam Ruins Everything. It's an educational comedy show where I uh, tell you the awful truth about everything that you never wanted to have to need to know. Uh, I always mess up our tagline. I think it's something like that. Well, anyway, it's a really good show. And on that show, I talk to incredibly fascinating experts from around the world of science, journalism, uh, advocacy, just really fascinating people who know things that I don't know and that the audience doesn't know. And and we bring them on the show so they can tell us what they've learned. Right. But on the TV show, heck, we only get to talk to them for like 90 seconds, three minutes, something like that. On this podcast, I talk to them for way longer, 45 minutes, an hour. I get to ask them on air every question that I was pestering them with over lunch on set, right? Over our uh, cold macaroni salad in between takes. I was like, tell me more about your fascinating work. And that was the, that was honestly where the idea for this podcast came from. And that's what we're going to do here today. But before I tell you who we're talking to this week, I would like to remind you that Adam Ruins Everything is currently in the off season, but you can find clips and full episodes of the show at truetv.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. So today's guest is University of Georgia professor Laura McAndrews, who appeared on Adam Ruins Shopping Malls, or Adam Ruins Shopping, or was it Adam Ruins the Mall? I ruin a shop, I ruin shopping and I ruin the mall. It's really Adam Ruins uh, Malls and Shopping and the Shopping Malls, probably the name of the episode. On that episode, we discussed how outlet stores are not really made of rejected merchandise, you know, coming from uh, the main store. They're actually made, they're actually a totally different supply chain that's made to just a cheaper, lower standard of quality. And uh, Laura was our expert for that segment, but During our lunch break, we started talking about fast fashion in general, which is a subject that she researches and a subject that she has a lot of experience in. Before being uh, a professor, she worked in the industry and she saw a lot of the industry's practices firsthand. And now she teaches students who are going into the industry all about what they can expect and how they can change the industry for the better. And personally, as someone who wears clothes, that topic is interesting to me. And if you wear clothes too, I think you might feel the same. But hey, even if you're a nudist, I think you'll find this interview interesting. So without further ado, let's get to it. We're so excited to have Laura join us from Athens, Georgia, over the internet telephone today. Let's get to the interview. Uh, Well, yeah, thank you so much, Laura, for uh, coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So you're a professor at the University of Georgia, and we didn't really get into that on the show. What exactly do you uh, work on there? So um, I'm an assistant professor of product development and design in our textile merchandising interiors department. So basically, I kind of have a lot of fun classes I get to teach. I teach a lot of apparel design, creativity, and I also teach a class that really kind of focuses on this topic of kind of apparel quality and sustainability. Um, And really, a lot of those classes that I teach really comes out of my nine years experience in the fashion industry. 
Right. So before you were a professor, you uh, worked at Ralph Lauren, right, and The Gap. And that's why you came on to tell us about how outlets worked and uh, and the differences between or, or how they don't really work the way people think they do. Exactly. So, yeah, I was a little Kansas girl that moved to New York City. <laughs> and I I worked in at Ralph Lauren Children's Wear. I worked at The Gap. Um, and then I also did a, a year working at Urban Outfitters um, in the anthropology division. So I worked the longest at The Gap. Um, I worked about five years there. And that's where I really got to travel to um, different developing countries. And I got to analyze factories and mills. And I really got to see the supply chain of the apparel industry, which is kind of what I briefly spoke about on the show. So the different kind of the quality of different supply chains and the impacts of those supply chains on, you know, overall sustainability. Right. And so that's what, uh, you know, honestly, you came on the show to talk about uh, outlet, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, outlets for that segment. But then, you know, while the uh, while the cameras weren't rolling, we started talking about uh, fast fashion, your broader work there. And and I got really interested in that topic. So what did you see, you know, in those travels that that uh, sort of opened your eyes specifically? Yeah, well, fast fashion is such, unfortunately, is probably all the brands that most of us shop at. You know, there's Zara, there's Gap, there's Adidas, obviously Forever 21, H&M, and I could list so many more. But really what fast fashion is, uh, there's kind of four things about or aspects of fast fashion. So one, it's cheap. Mm. Every Everything is about getting the very, very cheapest price. The other thing is the method and the timeline of manufacturing. And I'll talk about that in a second, especially in my travels um, to different factories. And then obviously it focuses on trend because they want the consumer to keep going into their store and buying something new. And then the last part is really that it's disposable and it's really designed and created to be disposable. I've always had that experience. Like I used to joke, uh, I used to do you know a, a joke in my stand-up act about how when you go to H&M and you sort of run your fingers through the clothes, they just like disintegrate off the racks. Like they, oh, they, they seem do. to be made... <laughs> Out of like tissue paper, but but that's I assume that was just out of cheapness. They they are literally designed to be disposable. They really are, from um, the fibers that we chose to the yarns, to the fabrics that were knitted or woven, even the trims that we used. And then obviously the factories that we chose are lower quality factories that they're just not constructing them well. They're not using um, they're using cheap. Even machinery and the technology in there is very, very low. So, you know, we knew a lot of things weren't going to stand up over time. But in some ways, again, you know, it would it, w- it was really just designed to be trendy for that season. And the next season, we wanted them to come back into the store and buy our new thing. Right. And, you know, what are the broadly the effects of that uh, supply oh. chain and that means of construction? So um, there's a lot of effects. (laughs) So there's a lot of effects both um, on the environmental aspect and really the social aspect. So if you look at the environmental aspect, um, well, and maybe just to kind of give the audience like, a you know, an understanding, you know, back in the day, there were four seasons. You know, there was spring, summer, fall and winter. 
You mean of clothing, not not of literal, clothing, not literal yes. weather. Yeah, <laughs> of, of clothing, exactly. So seasons of clothing. You know, that's how you know the Paris fashion um, couture houses they were set up along those four seasons. So there was like an ebb and flow in design and manufacturing. But mm-hmm. now with fast fashion, there are 11 to 15 and probably more seasons um, really? a year. Yes. It has increased by that much. Um, what do they call them? Like, are there, are there names? They're really, they're really delivery dates. And so we would essentially have different del- delivery dates that we would design into. So I we'd see. have a, a January 1st delivery date. And then, and that was to do a palate cleanse from, from all the holiday <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know, we would have, that's really the words that, that were used. Really? Um, um, you know, then we'd have, you know, maybe a later in June delivery. And so they really were more delivery dates. So when you think of that environmentally, you know, think of all the clothing then you're producing, you know, you're essentially, you know, if you think of the gap, when you walk in there every, at least every month, you're getting a whole new supply of clothing. Um, And that's why you see so many of those like the sale rack, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and we've kind of trained the consumer in some ways to live off of the sale rack. But mm-hmm. a lot of those clothing, you know, if you really just think of it from the retail side, you know, it goes into sale, you know, either it goes into, um, you know, whether, I mean, really, they just sell things out or they may donate it or um, really a lot of times they just, you know, throw it away and it ends up in landfills. But then if you Jeez. think of the the consumer, you know, the consumer only really wants to wear it because, you know, they went in, they bought that palate cleanser on January 1st. They go back in there in February and they're like, oh, what I just bought in January is old. I'm throwing that away because I need to buy now what's new in February. Right. So, you know, the consumer then is adding to the landfill or – even what I think is even more devastating is that you donate it to Goodwills, the Salvation Army, and a lot of those clothing get dumped in developing countries. And mm. for example, I was in Ghana last May, and essentially Ghana and really a lot of African nations are the U.S.'s and you know uh, Western Europe's like thrift store. And mm. so these these clothing get dumped into that market and it destroys then the local economy. So why would you go and get something made by the local seamstress, you know, for maybe $5 when you can just buy a used t-shirt for a dollar? Right, we talked about that in our in our episode on Tom's shoes about how yes. uh, you know, do- donating shoes isn't really, but we you know isn't isn't a great way to uh, help people in those nations. Uh, but we were sort of limiting that to shoes. That that's true of can, can that really happen if someone is just donating their old H and M shirt to to Goodwill? It can end up in that in those countries. Exactly. If it doesn't get sold here in the U.S., um, it it ends up in Africa. Africa's a big um you know it goes to Southeast Asia too, but Africa's the big one that it does go to. I mean the better alternative I do say to students and I say to like friends and colleagues is find a local like a, a local donation center. You know, every city, even you know, here in Athens we have so many it's a small, you know, college town, but we have so many local donation centers that it stays within the community it doesn't then get dumped into a developing country 
Right now in L.A. we have Out of the Closet, which I think is local yeah. to Los Angeles. Um, I, I've also heard that a lot of those donations um, – there's sort of like this market for like bulk recycled textiles that a lot of times when you donate your clothes and you're like, oh, it'll go, you know, some uh, orphan will wear it who really needs it. Really what's happening is it's getting sort of shredded down into uh, just like bulk fabric and used for rags or something like that. Is that the case? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, a lot of them, I, I'm not exactly sure specifically of the example you're giving, but I think a lot of U.S. consumers, they think, oh, I'm donating this. It's going to go to someone really, really in need. And that's just not necessarily the case. I mean, there is really no research to to support that. It, I mean, the research says it gets dumped into these developing countries. And the devastating thing is it it's so damaging on their local economy because right. they become so dependent on this secondhand kind of market that it creates. And if, if you think about it, the the amount of clothes that because we're buying them at such a rate as you describe, we're the, the amount of like donated clothes must be enormous. Like uh, just on an intuitive level, much higher than any secondary market that there would actually be in the United States. I would imagine. Oh my gosh! Yes, it's it, it, it's completely wasteful. I mean, I don't have numbers, but um, <laughs> especially I mean, I, but it, it's just astronomical. Not only how I mean, most of our textile waste. Real in clothing waste really honestly ends up in the landfill. That's what's really, really sad. And then only like a smaller percentage then does get dumped into these developing country markets. Right. So most of your clothes are in a dump. <laughs> that's that's what's really sad. So is this entire uh, you know system with the with the extra seasons added and and everything that that caused more and more clothes to be made? Was all the the entire purpose of that just to get more people in the store, get them to come to the store more often, increase the the rate at which people are are turning over their clothes? Is is it entirely sort of an artificial marketing pressure that's that's causing this waste? Absolutely. Really? Um, at Gap, our merchandisers um, would always say to us, "Oh, we need to give her a reason to buy. Give her a reason to buy." And in doing that, having new product in the store gives her a reason to buy. So it fast fashion kind of came out of this um, like 1980s, 1990s kind of merchandising term called quick response or fast to market. Hmm. You know, because most of this, like a retail store had a lot of your basics, you know, had your you know, back to school items or it had your workwear and it was very, you know, basic. And But there would be a couple of items that had a bit of a trend to it. And really now we have flipped that model and everything has to be trendy. Um, I mean, especially you have stores like H&M and Forever 21 that are, they totally, you know, take what's on the runway and they sell it right away in the store. So we have become so kind of trend obsessed or maybe as consumers, I'm sure the retailers have really trained us to be these like trend obsessed culture. And it's so weird to be like, oh, I'm going to buy a high quality basic item. Um, That's a bit of a foreign concept (laughs) to a lot of us. I mean, I mean, I'll say it to my students and they're like, what would be a basic? <laughs> so it's 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 very foreign to them. Um, and I realize, wow, okay, you know, they've really flipped this model and they've really 
you know, the retailers have really trained us to just, oh, I have to have something new. Sure. You know, that will make me, you know, that'll make me more beautiful or that'll make me happier and that'll make me worth something. I mean, you know, you can get into like a lot of deep psychology behind it. But. It's it's almost that I could also even imagine the poor construction quality of the clothes contributing to that turnover because I always have that experience where I get something and I'm really excited about it because I like the I like the style or whatever. And then a year after I buy it, I realize, wait a second, this doesn't fit. You know, like either <laughs> either I've maybe I've gained a little weight, but also maybe it was because I was more excited about the style, and then I and then I realized, oh wait, this is not actually flattering, or the the cut isn't right, or whatever, and then and then I get rid of it. You know, um, and and so there's almost like that. Uh, you know, I think the idea of a quality basic, like you said, is is something that you could oh it fits you right, and you can wear it for a really long time, and it sort of doesn't break down, and maybe you get like you know four or five years out of of wear out of it, yeah. but it has to be well made. For that to be the case, and so the so the the incentive is to actually make the clothes poorly because then people will always be a little bit dissatisfied because oh my sweater pilled I have to buy a new one yep. oh my you know oh oh absolutely and going back to that you know these kind of poorly constructed garments and how they go through this supply chain you know it's so when I talk about a supply chain everywhere from let's say the farmer the yarn producer. Um, the mill that either weaves up your woven fabrics or knits up your knitted fabrics, and then the actual factory that puts the clothing together, you know, it, it, to the retailer, to the consumer, that's an entire supply chain. So when I talk about these like lower quality supply chains, at every one of those kind of supply chain links, I, as a product developer, as a designer, I was having to make choices that... I was lowering the quality. Hmm. So maybe I got a fiber that, like a cotton fiber, maybe, you know, I made sure it was like cheaper, that it was maybe a shorter staple, meaning that it could pill easier. Because longer stapled cottons, they're nicer, but they're more expensive. And then when I, you know, was working with the mill and with the spinning of the yarn, again, maybe I chose a lower quality yarn that then was a lower, that made a lower quality fabric. And then on top of which, you know, I was going to factories and I was having to find factories that made it in the most, in the cheapest way possible, you know, and I did knits. So knits is like the lowest skilled product. You need very low, lower skilled laborers essentially to do knit products. Really? Like sweaters knits, and things think, like that? Yeah. Like, well, not sweaters, um, like T-shirts and all your athletic brand just because okay. – uh, there's a lot of give and there's a lot of flexibility and there's a lot of stretch with knit. Mm -hmm. So you can like make little mistakes, <laughs> denim and, um, you know, think of like suit jackets. They're way more tailored. So you do need ways more skilled um, laborers. Yeah. So I was I was in countries that had these lower um, skilled laborers that had maybe lower quality factories, but they could make our T-shirts for you know, $2, $3, $4. So you'd go there and, you know, you definitely would notice how, uh, so I spent most most of my travels in Vietnam, Cambodia, um, some in India, and then I spent a week sourcing in, in Bangladesh before the whole Rana Plaza 
disaster, but I was looking at factories. And what was that disaster? Could you could you remind? I, I... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the the Rena Plaza factory collapse happened in was it 2011 or 2012, and essentially because you know again. Fast fashion decided they were kind of done with Vietnam and Cambodia because the apparel <laughs> industry does well. They chase <laughs> cheap labor. Yeah. No, they do. They it's it is cruel. Yeah. They chase cheap labor. Oh, your standard I of mean, living is too high. You, on to the next country. <laughs> yes, that's why China has. You know, they're doing the iPhone. They've said, right. you know, screw clothing. We're 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 sticking with the iPhone. But, uh, you know, and it's moved to Southeast Asia and then it went to Bangladesh. So you had a lot of companies like American Eagle, Abercrombie, um, even, you know, Old Navy. And they were we were looking at potentially going there for Gap, you know, and they just kind of rushed to Bangladesh. But the thing is, with Bangladesh, it didn't have the infrastructure to really support all these new factories. And when I say infrastructure, not only the roads were bad, but you had buildings that had cracks in them that didn't have pr- proper foundations that just weren't safe, right. sound buildings to be having all these thousands of people and these heavy machinery moving into. Jeez. So, you know, you had these people that were like, oh, my God, let's just set up these factories really quick. And, you know, they put all their money into let's buy some sewing machines. Let's get the people in here and let's start getting these orders. And, um, unfortunately, there was a huge building collapse and thousands of people died. Thousands, man. Of, you know, it's it, – yeah, it's – I mean, it's it's unfortunate that um, the apparel industry um, doesn't have much hindsight because it's not too much different than the shirtwaist, you know, the Triangle Factory fire in New York City yeah, and, in the turn of the and, century. And on the, when, when we – that's the interesting thing is that we had these problems. Yeah, that was the Lower East Side. Uh, uh, I remember w- when I was uh, living in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, there was like a, a memorial where that where people were were chalking where people who died and the women who died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire lived, and one of them had lived yeah. on my block. Um, you know, in that, uh, but you know, a hundred years prior, and so I was like, "Oh, wow, that really, that really happened here." It sort of, it sort of hit me at home. But we, we improved our our standards and our safety here. But now we've exported those uh, those jobs to places that don't have those same standards. Yeah, we we really do. We, um, we exported all of our problems <laughs> to other countries. Um, I, I, I think mean, that's been one doing... way to take care of it. You know, shovel all the. <laughs> you know, when you got a pile of laundry on your floor and companies coming over, shove it in the closet, right? Or, yep, yep. I cut you off before you said you went to Bangladesh um, before yeah. that disaster happened, and what did you see there? So I saw really deplorable factories. Again, I saw factories that had cracks in walls that, you know, one of the things I remember my VP always telling me is, you know, when you go into a factory, um, ask to go to the bathroom and, and, and see where they take you. And it was funny how most of those factories did not have a bathroom for me to go to. Wow, really? uh, so I mean, I mean, granted, um, I was white, and so I don't know if they were trying to get me the nicest bathroom, but mm-hmm. um, there were some factories I didn't see um, bathrooms, which I think is just a normal thing people should should have at work, even if you yeah. are working in a developing country, you should have a place to go to the bathroom. So they just shook. They just, you're like, can I go to the bathroom? They just shook their head, like, no, well, there's no bathroom. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were very nervous. They're like, well, it's. I heard, you know, it's under construction. It's. Yeah. Um, it's getting fixed. We've had some plumbing issues, and you would hear this kind of, you know, 
repeated. Yep. In other words, they don't want you to see it. It basically. I mean, they may yeah. have had one or they may not have. I don't know. <laughs> right. And, and so, was this an example? Because you hear sometimes with these companies who have. Uh, manufacturing overseas that they say, well, we're contracting with the manufacturer and, and we only have indirect control over the, you know, over the working conditions. Was it if, if your, you know, colleague also said, hey, ask about the factories. Where, did you feel, you know, in your work that you were sort of, you know, having to fight to to improve these standards or it, did you feel that the companies you worked for were sort of complicit in the problem? You know, um, this is something that I tell my students, and I try to teach and instill this in my students. Um, When I was traveling to these places, I was between the ages of 24 and 29. And um, I'm making a lot of money. I'm flying around the world in first class. I am, you know, 25 in Bangladesh. That's pretty cool. Um, I had very little ability, probably of integrity to really stand up and say, you know, this doesn't seem right. Because I was so trained by high level to be, okay, do they have the machineries and can they do it cheap? Mm -hmm. And that was so what I was laser focused on. And I, I was complicit. I mean, I won't even say it was the company. I mean, I was complicit because they were getting me the prices that I needed. Yeah. And that's really the the bottom line was all that mattered, you know, to these companies. And um, it's a huge unfortunate thing that I live through. But I, I love that every semester I get another, you know, 100 students that I'm teaching them. Don't be complicit. Like stand up. If something yeah. looks wrong, say something. Because I think, you know, at that time I was told, well, this is how factories are. And this is how our clothes get made. And so I... I took that. I took that, you know, we did overtimes. Um, I took that sometimes, you know, it's okay that um, workers get paid with maybe clothing because we, you know, they can't, the factory can't pay them with actual wages. Um, It's okay that a 16 year old is, is working. It's okay if maybe, um, you know, there's not the right safety precautions. You know, you got to think there's a lot of different machinery in these in these in these factories, and maybe proper safety um, regulations and standards aren't being followed. Like that's just how it is. And when I went to graduate school, I got to spend some time. I was a part of um, a grant fellowship, and I got to work in a factory down in El Salvador, and I saw how it can be completely different. But the problem is you don't make as much money or you don't as you know, you're not you're not going to be the kind of factory for fast fashion um, because this factory worked more um, with European brands that, again, were a little um, that were definitely higher quality. And I got to see the contrast of what I saw in Southeast Asia and with fast fashion to what a real high quality um, factory looks like. Well, I'm here talking to Professor Lauren McAndrews. We'll be back in just a moment, so stick around. Chaotic Bro. Natural Jaeger. Picosby. Mount Armas. The USS Entrepreneur. Dustbuster Club. Drunk Shimoda. What are we talking about? Some of the many delightful nonsenses 
that are now important running gags in the Star Trek podcast we still can't believe we're actually making. The Greatest Generation is a show that is reviewing Star Trek The Next Generation episode by episode, but it's much sillier and has more fart jokes than that makes it sound. Our reputations may never recover. You can get our show at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to University of Georgia professor Laura McAndrews about fast fashion. Well, that raises an interesting question uh, for me, because if you asked me without having heard what you just said, you know, which is uh, going to be the the better garment, you know, or the more humanely made garment, the one made in El Salvador or the one made in Bangladesh, I probably wouldn't know. I don't really have associations with those countries or with that made of origin label, uh, uh, nation of origin label. Country of origin. Country of origin label. Thank you. Which which (laughs) I know, by the way, is a whole other can of worms. The country of origin label barely means anything, I, I understand. But. Is there a way? Oh, absolutely. So, because I understand that you know, um, uh, you know, globalization and and the globalization of the supply chain is a problem. But I also know that there are some cases in which it works out okay. Like I know that there are. Um, you know, there's a, there's a shoe company that we've gotten shoes from from the show that I know half the shoe is made in China and half of it is made in Italy, but I think they're made pretty well in China. I think they've, like, contracted with some really good cobblers who know their stuff and they're, like, professionals, yeah. you know what I mean? And uh, that's actually sort of a, a benefit. Everyone's, you know, sort of going well in that transaction. I, I know that there are cases like that, right? Um, there are there are sort of companies that do it better than others, um, and maybe there are countries that, that are have better working conditions. How is the consumer uh, is there are there any tools that we can use to uh, uh, figure out uh, which are the uh, which are the companies or countries we we should feel okay about buying from? Well, um, okay, honestly, the label country of origin is very unique to the U.S. Europe um, doesn't use that because I think they've known for a long time how meanly, meaningless it really? is. Um, actually, there is a lot of legislation going through that is trying to take off the country of origin from labels uh, because it's misleading. It's really pretty much inaccurate. Um, so there, there's actually a lot of pending legislation to take off the country of origin from our garment. That's really interesting. And wh- why is it misleading? Can you give us a quick summary? Well, I mean, there really is no good and bad globalization. I really Again, this is probably very much a personal note, and um, this is just something from my experience, what I've seen with the process of globalization. But globalization is good. Um, It's kind of survival of the fittest. You know, when you allow um, each country to do what they do best, like, for example, um, Japan, Germany, and Italy make the best machinery to go into factories. So why wouldn't you get your machinery from those three countries if you are making a um, if you're going to open up a factory? Mm-hmm. Chinese workers are probably some of the most skilled, along with like Korea and Vietnam and even Cambodia. For some reason, Malaysia does the best garment dye. They have be- they can create so many beautiful colors. Um the U.S. right now, I mean, the U.S. is great at designing. We are great thinkers. We are great creators. So I'm a huge believer in globalization. And I, um, I'm i always saddened when I see tra- trade policies blocking globalization. 
because it really doesn't allow for that the best, you know, a country to really specialize in what they do best. Yeah. Oh no, ahead. I was going to say that's. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting perspective, and that's one that I've that I've heard a lot, and it sort of makes. You know, it does make intuitive sense. Like uh, it's you know, sort of uh, uh, basic Adam Smith. You know, uh, uh, do what you're good at, and yeah. you know, everybody prospers. But then I think people see the uh, flip side of that, right? Which is the horrible conditions that you're that you're talking about. Um, is there? Uh, yeah. So how do we how do we prevent them then? In a lot of in a lot of that, a lot of that has to do with how the brand manages the globalization. I will say um, for as maybe as maybe as many negative things as I've just said about the gap, they really did try to put the budget in there that so that we would go into factories and we would at least have a presence in our factories. And they knew that that we were going to be visiting. Um, On the flip side, when I was at Urban Outfitters, you never went to factories. You never you never had a presence in there. So, um, yes, I would say do some brands have a better supply chain management than others? Absolutely. I don't necessarily think it's, you know, a country that's better or worse. I think it's how the brand manages their supply chain. And that's that's so difficult to decipher besides just for what my own experience has been. Um because you can't really read that on a label. You can't really ask that, um, you know, at the retail level. Right. The the supply chain is so invisible to us. I mean, I, I think my, my understanding of, it is. of country of origin labels and the reason why they don't mean much is because you might have cotton that was grown in the U.S. or spun into yarn in a different country. And then mm-hmm. uh, and then that yarn is taken to another country that makes the textile. And then that is taken to another country. They actually assemble the shirt or whatever it is. Uh, and then, I don't know, they uh, they it comes back to the U.S. That's and they exactly, put the price tags on it. You know? So what country is it from? It's from all those countries at once. But we, we choose one of those and we say, oh, it was made here in the place where they just have the sewing machines. Pretty much um, it's the main sewing construction. So basically the side seams or the neckline or like a center front or center back seam. I mean, if you think of it, even when you say made in the USA, there's very, very low standards. You don't need to have sewn that much in the U.S. Mm. to slap that made in the USA, especially if you're using NAFTA trade regulations. You really you're right. It really is meaningless. Um. A great reference for people is Travels of a T-Shirt, one of my favorite books. And what um, the author and researcher did was basically buy a T-Shirt from um, her school's bookstore, and she followed it. She found the Texas, you know, cotton supplier. She found the Indonesia yarn supplier. And she traveled around the world like her T-Shirt did. And that's a very, very common you know, way our clothes get made. And we just have to know that. So is there a, a, you know, given that reality uh, and given the fact that we can't, you know, see the supply chain, you know, when when we're, you know, when when we're in uh, downtown and, and, hey, there's Forever 21, there's The Gap, uh, there's, uh, what's a, what's a, you know, a higher level brand? There's a Brooks Brothers, there's a 
Z- or, or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I can go into the Brooks Brothers and I can touch the clothes and go, okay, well, these seem to be made better. And the, the countries that, you know, it says it was made in maybe seem a little bit, uh, you know, higher up the uh, developing country chain. But, uh, you know, how am I, how am I to know or how, how am I to make decisions if I, uh, if I now care about this issue? You know, I always say probably the easiest way, you know, if you are not wanting to make, you know, kind of a negative kind of imprint on our planet, if you want to um, be better at, you know, the environmental and the social aspect, um, especially when it comes to buying apparel, the best thing to do is instead of buying, you know, Let's say if you're going into Brooks Brothers and you wanted to buy two jackets, could you get away with mm. just buying one? I mean, honestly, the best thing that I I can really advise because things are so convoluted, things are so difficult to um, really research. And I mean, if you do your due diligence and you do your research, you know, you can find, you know, some of these scandals out. But the best thing to do is just buy less. <laughs> You know, I mean, I mean, honestly, because I have students and they're just like, I feel so overwhelmed with all these evils that you've <laughs> told me. Like, I can't walk into an H&M. I can't walk into a Forever 21. But I'm a poor college student and I do want to buy something. And I just go, hey, how many times have you walked into an H&M and you've gone in and you've bought four tops? What if you just <laughs> bought one or two? I mean, that's really, you know, I, I mean, that's that kind of quiet, you know, maybe a little bit of a protest in there that you can do of saying, hey, you know what? Yeah, you may have uh, sold this T-shirt for six fifty, um, but I'm not going to fall into the trap of them buying four of them. I'm going <laughs> to only buy one of them. Or, you know, God forbid, you know, you just wait, save up you know, the $20 and just buy one really great t-shirt from, you know, go into Nordstrom's and buy something or to maybe just a higher quality brand. And and that would really be okay. <laughs> like you're, you're not going. So, I mean, I, I honestly, that's, that's my best advice to people is, you know, we've been trained, you know, to be this consumer driven kind of population that the more we have the happier we are and that's that's not true <laughs> i mean thousands of research will back me up on it's that just statement so, inter- so it's just so interesting just that the less. system is so complex that it's uh you know when asked like okay you know how do i tell the good brands from the bad ones sort of the the best advice you can give is i ah, just buy less generally you know and that's uh <laughs> and you're and you're a <laughs> yes it's really it's really difficult. I mean, I I mean I teach my students different skills, you know, from looking at fabric, from looking at stitches and seams. I mean, without knowing all of that, and even that it's so hard. Like even I go in and I'm still sometimes surprised and I found such a high quality garment mm-hmm. at like a TJ Maxx. And then I found a crap you know, quality something at Banana yeah. Republic. You know, it's 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 really difficult to tell. I hate to it's say really things. hard, and and you know, so much of them that it seems like the brands will change their suppliers in the middle of uh, you know, like yes. you go you go to a place. Hey, this is where I get my jeans. They fit me nice. They seem to be nice quality. I buy 
you know, one pair every year and a half when I when I bust through the crotch the last one in my case. Um, yeah. And then you go there and you're like, oh, wait, it, it changed. It's it, the gene isn't the same. It's got the same name. It's still the, you know, the short, skinny, gene, you know, whatever gene. But it's like, oh, wait, it's made. It's clearly made of something different. Something happened. And I don't know what, you know. Oh, we changed um, factories sometimes every season because, again, we would change based on the cost. So, you know, if we had like um, a popular T-shirt that sold great one season and we were going to replenish it the next season, we would send it out to our um, suppliers and vendors and we'd say, hey, we have another million units of this. Do you want this? We need a better price. Wow. So we absolutely did that. Again, that's the nature. Remember the first thing I said about fast fashion. It's all about the price. And it's not like that price, that discount, you know, that cost savings doesn't, you know, it doesn't trickle down to the consumer. It's that the company, you know, got more money, got more markup. You know, in general, my target markups, meaning from what I – landed the garment here in the U.S. in the distribution center to what the consumer bought it at full price, a lot of times my targets were an 82% markup. Really? Yeah. And that's and that's in fast fashion where people are buying, you know, yep. $6 t-shirts. Yep. That's, yep. In, that's insane. Because when I, you know, you see those deals and you're like, well, they must just be making a couple pennies on this. But, nope. but that's actually, that's actually a huge margin for uh, uh, I mean, clothes. granted, um, you know, things would get marked down. And then, of course, that would take a punch to the uh, markup. But we would never mark it down any more than that. We were still making around 40 percent. So, so, so let that's me, a lot still. So, so let me ask. You're like in this, uh, you know, you're in the fashion world. You're you're seeing these things and you're maybe, you know, your consciousness is opening to them a, a little bit. Is, or is that what happened? Were you in this world and you said, wait a second, this this stuff is a little messed up. Uh, let me let me sort of uh, jump out of this and and uh, and go into teaching or, or how, how did that? happen? Oh, um, I was laid off from the gap in. Um, oh, OK. <laughs> in 2009. During all those layoffs. <laughs> so, well, so that's why I'm Got it. so Well, I hope, well, I hope you made a protest as you left. You said, you know what? This is an unethical business anyway. And you stomped out the door, I hope. I uh, know. I wish. I wish. <laughs> no, I think I was like so confused. No, there were, right. you know, there was just so much job elimination. There was about a year there at the Gap. And I mean, it's still, um, I have 200 friends from the New York office that got laid off last summer or the summer before. Um, so they have just been doing so many layoffs. Uh, and, and New York City in 2008 and 2009, there was a whole city laid off on severance. Um, and luckily it was summertime. So it was actually really fun, but it was a little depressing. <laughs> I'm sure there was way more. Everyone in your industry is just yes. out on the street well, or, or, no, Golden... or out, out of a job anyway. Oh, yeah. Golden Sachs was off. Lehman Brothers was out. I mean, New York City during that time was catastrophic. So we were all laid wow. off. And honestly, it's really sad of how much when I was in the industry, I didn't realize how bad it was. I mean, like, I, I do remember, you know, being in certain factories, especially that week in Bangladesh. I remember that lived with me for a really, really long time. And I kept saying, like, why do we 
push these pennies when, I mean, those factories were horrible. And they, you know, my VPs would be like, well, those pennies aren't going to the people. They're just going to the rich factory owner. So just keep pushing and mm. save another five cents. And so I do remember at one point, I just was like, this is, doesn't seem right. And um, even after that Bangladesh trip, I was very much like, I don't think I don't want my products made there. If Old Navy wants to go there, if other departments want to go there, that's great. But I don't want my products made in Bangladesh, partly because right. I just didn't want to go there because it was very sad to see the conditions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very yeah, I mean, that's sad, a good reason. It was depressing. Um, yeah. so, I mean, if it makes you depressed to go somewhere to like you know, to go check out your supply chain, that's a pretty good sign that your supply chain is unethical. (laughs) I mean, I still remember there's like a vivid memory of, um, I shouldn't say this, but it it was H&M sweaters. And there was just piles of this H of of these H&M sweaters. And I remember it was a turquoise blue. And this, it was just a huge pile of, of sweaters that was like piled up on the floor. And these women were sleeping in these piles of H&M sweaters. And I remember just being like, this isn't wow. right. And this was literally probably three months before I got laid off. You know, I just yeah. I, I was I remember seeing this and I kind of just was like, I'm done. Like and I I, I was very much left the industry being like, I'm finished, I'm done. Um and I thought New York City was the problem, so that's why I went to Urban Outfitters, which is based out of uh Philadelphia. But you know, it was the same. It was this. And I, I thought Philly was the answer, but um, I think that's the the paradox of globalism is you can't get away from it by moving. <laughs> no, and it was just as depressing there. Um, you know, seeing that supply chain, and you know, I was I, I kind of started not focusing on my supply chain. Be, and I just was like, okay, I'm just going to put the numbers through. I'm just going to put the orders through. Do what I need to do. Develop the product I need to develop. And what I really got passionate about is training these, you know, girls that had just graduated and was so dazzled by the fashion industry. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I they're so optimistic and I, I want to train them. <laughs> and so yeah. that's when that's that's where I really got the urge of like, you know what, I can I can teach the fashion industry and I can, you know, while I'm teaching them the skills and, you know, the definitions they need, I can I can tell them this bad stuff just so that they're just a little better prepared when they go out there and maybe they'll speak up where I didn't speak up. Right. I mean, that's the, that's really uh, that's really wonderful and unique, I think, because uh, you're sort of teaching in this. Uh, uh, I, I don't know quite the word for it, but, you know, sort of like a trade discipline. You know, you're yeah. not you're not uh, you're not up, the, up there teaching. You know, you're not in the human rights department no. or anything. You're no math, you, you're no teaching. science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like this is this is how to these are you're teaching people who are going into the business, um, but you're also giving them this uh, this information and and uh, open trying to open their eyes to this issue that strikes me as as kind of rare. I mean, it's not many. Uh, I don't know, you know, uh, in com- in computer engineering uh, programs, they don't tell people about the conditions in Foxconn factories uh, yeah. where you know th- that are running the apps that you're learning to develop. So. I, I, and do you have like an overall message that you that you try to impart to them about about that issue or? Um, 
there's I mean, there's several issues. I mean, I always say have the integrity to speak up. And then I try to mm-hmm. give them the skills of how to professionally speak up. <laughs> um, I still am working on those professional skills to be able to, <laughs> you know, very logically and with, you know, facts and, you know, with the education, I, you know, I really educate them a lot on sustainability. So again, balancing environment with people and, and making a profit yeah. still, you know, I, I really do try to teach them that so they understand, okay, like we can balance this process and we can still make money. So I, I definitely try to teach them, you know, the integrity to speak up and not to be afraid to. Like, it's okay to ask questions and ask, you know, if, if something doesn't seem right, it probably isn't right. So, right. you know, at least when they're going out into industry, you know, they're not complicit because I think for a long time I was very complicit and I was very dazzled by all the things I was getting and all the, you know, just, you know, you would stay in the most expensive hotels. And I tell them that. And I I said, just because your company's paying for that doesn't mean you should put your integrity and just your um, compassion, you know, behind, you know, what your paycheck is. So, ask questions, look out for the little people. I mean, the the thing is, the apparel industry is this very powerful and very amazing industry because I have seen it go into countries and take it from a very impoverished, developed country and industrialize it. I mean, I think mm-hmm. Vietnam, Vietnam is a wonderful case of that. Even when we look at like Hong Kong and Shanghai and, you know, in, in different parts of China, Um, You see that you see this amazing development and this industry and the growth and money that has um, come into a country because of the apparel industry, because it's really the first industry after agriculture that can go into a nation and start to develop it. Um, right, so I've heard had, that argument that that it's the uh, that, that sort of the textile industry is one of the sort of early stages of development, and yep. and that uh, it can help a country sort of pull itself up by its bootstraps, and that's sort of maybe the the most positive vision of what that could be. But obviously, there's a there's another side of the coin um, in terms of you know uh, factory collapses and yeah. whatnot, but. But it is, I mean, that's not something to be ignored. It doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't have to be that way. I think if responsible business, you know, owners and responsible um, supply chain managers, if they go in there and they help these local factories reinvest into their factories, into their mills, you can have a very... Um, sustainable, ethical, moral supply chain, and I know, and, and I know that exists because I saw that in El Salvador. Because every one of mm. those business owners decided to hold hands and say, "You know what? It's not all about the bottom line. I mean, yes, we want to make a profit, and we will, but we're going to reinvest back into um, our factories." That's so, really the. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful because I mean I think uh, uh, honestly a lot of times this debate about globalization and and working conditions and outsourcing jobs or or just you know uh, sort of multinational corporations uh, causing you know environmental and and human rights harm you know the the division often becomes black and white it, it becomes either, well either yeah. hey that's how capitalism works or well guess what I'm, you got to opt out of the whole system and make your own clothes at home <laughs> you know that's the only <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and that's the only option but but 
both of those have always seemed unworkable to me that that you know these systems are so large that we can't just all decide to opt out of them and destroy them and and it sounds like like you have a vision for these companies like the culture of the industry changing and uh these companies uh changing you know the way they do business in order to make it more equitable to give both their workers and frankly their customers uh better lives and and better outcomes and uh, that that it sounds like you feel like that's like that's very possible. Absolutely. Oh, I do think it's very possible. I think it has to do with these again these um, transnational companies really going in and investing the time and train, you know, these factory owners, these mill owners, then for the factory owners and the mill owners to then reinvest and really train their workers. And it can happen. It really can happen. But um, I think we as a developed country, the country that is really sending our work overseas, because again, we do want lower price consumer goods. And there's nothing wrong with wanting lower price consumer goods. But we just need to you know, we can't just be like a bull in a china shop and just run in there and just, okay, everyone just start making our things. You know, we need to go in there way more planned, way more, do our research, be diligent and train um, these people, you know, because we know better. That's the thing. We do know better. So why wouldn't we impart our knowledge to these developing countries and help them set things up? Right. Right. And then and then we can all kind of win. That's the thing. We can all then win in the system. We get cheaper consumer goods. They, you know, get an industry that they can um, flourish their economy. I mean, it can work and it can be mutually beneficial. But I don't you know, people get lazy. People, you know, get you know, they want to do things fast. They want everything now. And so they don't set these things up appropriately. Right. Well, I love that you're doing your your part to try to instill those values in the next generation of people working in, in the industry. <laughs> I mean, you gotta Cross you gotta our fingers. <laughs> you gotta at least give it a whack. I mean, I'm not saying you can change things by yourself, but um, you know, it's uh, uh, all you can do is try to is try to you know use what what bit of leverage you have to to try to make a better world. So I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. It's so, it's such a, it's one of those, it's one of those topics that I think gives people, you know, you go to the store and you're like, I know something's wrong here, but I don't know quite what, you know? And, <laughs> and, and so it's really fascinating to hear that, that, you know, you as an on the ground person working in the industry sort of had that, had that same experience, but that you have such a, even-handed response to it and 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 yeah. you know I love I love the idea that that someone can work in this in the industry but still have a still have a soul and and uh still be working <laughs> to make it better and and still you know make money like like capitalism says they're supposed to that's that's a good yeah. message Oh I well, mean yeah I mean I'm still about that but every see the, the, this topic is so um relevant because everyone wears clothes you know yeah. so it really does give everyone a moment to pause and to think and if you know we all collectively kind of say hey hmm let me give that big brand a message. Let me buy less. You know, maybe then the system will start, you know, rethinking itself. So we'll see. But thank <laughs> well, you so much. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Laura. It's really wonderful to talk to you. Absolutely. All right. Have a great one, Adam. 
Well, thank you again one more time for coming on the show, Laura. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast this week. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Sharon Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget... Leave us a rating or a comment where you subscribe. Again, Adam Ruins Everything is currently in the off-season, but you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.